The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. On July 1, 1863, just north of the town of Gettysburg, the Confederate Infantry Brigade, commanded by Brigadier General Alfred Iverson, marched across an open field into a federal ambush. Within minutes, the brigade was practically destroyed, losing close to two-thirds of its officers and men, killed, wounded, or captured. The first day of Gettysburg is generally remembered as one of success for Lee's army, but it was one of disaster for the North Carolinians of Iverson's command. How did this happen? Where was Iverson during the fight? Was he incompetent, or a coward, or even drunk on the day of battle, as post-war rumors had it? We'll explore the career of the man whose troops were slaughtered on the 1st of July in a conversation with Robert J. Winstra, author of The Rashness of That Hour, Politics, Gettysburg, and the Downfall of Confederate Brigadier General Alfred Iverson. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding? What about your business? We've got a program that will help streamline your image management. Tune in to Marketing Matters, hosted by Yasmeen Anderson-Smith. Your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you once again from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the University of North Carolina system, but as always, not speaking for the university, speaking just for myself. I know my guests will do the same, not speak for any past or present affiliations he might have. We'll be talking uh, Civil War talk as always. It's a lovely day. Autumn is here. It's beginning of October 2011. And uh, 
just the 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 weather is cool, uh, unseasonably cool for North Carolina, but feels like autumn is supposed to feel. So it's very nice. Uh, I'm consciously not talking to you about uh, East Carolina football this weekend. Things haven't gone well lately, so we'll just save that for another day. I'm not going to talk about Major League Baseball, my hometown, Detroit Tigers. Uh, knocked out a team that has lots of fans around the world, so I won't say anything about what they did last night, but it was pretty cool. Uh, and here on campus, things are proceeding as they often do. The latest uh, drive we're being faced with now is to demonstrate that we have the credentials necessary to teach in a university. Uh, in our department, that's not really a problem. Everyone has a PhD, but the uh, accrediting body wants to make sure everyone does have the right kind of degree. And apparently there are people in some departments who maybe don't have the necessary qualifications according to to the accrediting people. But it it is, uh, according to them, I'm I, if I have a PhD in history, I can teach any history course. I'm qualified to teach Japanese history or uh, South American history, which of course I am not qualified to teach at all. Whereas if uh, my colleague who does underwater archaeology and knows everything there is to know about the Navy and Nelson's time uh, from having uh, brought half of it up from under the Atlantic, uh, wants to teach a course on the history of Nelson's Navy, he has a degree in the wrong field, he's not qualified. Uh, that's, that's, the, uh, that's this week's bureaucratic folly. We'll, we'll let that go and move on to uh, happier things. Uh, Happier things like impedimentsofwar.org, the uh, very useful website that tells you what's coming up on Civil War Talk Radio. And we have some excellent uh, program uh, program ideas lined up ahead. There will not be a live show next week. I'll be in uh, Chicago attending the American Library Association training session for the Let's Talk About the Civil War program because I'm, I'm not good at talking about the Civil War, and I need that training. So you'll notice the difference when I come back. Um, on October 21, Joseph Gladhar from our colleagues up the road at Chapel Hill uh, will be here to talk about his many, many interesting works, most notably General Lee's Army, but others as well. Uh, no show on October 28th. Again, uh, seems like I'm never here these days, but there I'm actually, actually taking a weekend off to the old old college buddies and uh, tell lies and do other things. I'll, I, theoretically, I'm attending the Southern Historical Association conference, but I'm not really going there. So nothing on the 20th. But then we've got people, uh, many people uh, coming by. November 4th, Robert Kirby, superintendent at Gettysburg National Military Park. And we're going to be talking about Gettysburg today, of course. Uh, on November 11th, Jason Phillips, author of Die Hard Rebels. On November 18th, Thomas Crouch from the National Air and Space Museum will give us our first show ever on the aerial dimensions of the American Civil War. Uh, after Thanksgiving on December 2nd, Jimmy Price, who authors a blog on uh, African-American troops in the Civil War, uh, will be talking to us about that and also his new book on the Battle of Newmarket Heights in uh, 1864, when uh, uh, black Union soldiers were engaged. And our last show of the fall season will be December 9th. Uh, Wayne uh, Shia, uh, who 
was to have been on earlier will will get caught up with us at last and we'll talk about civil war tactics and the effect of the the schooling at West Point on military officers on both sides and how that affected the tactical outcomes of battles it sounds a little esoteric but it's uh, something I've had a long interest in uh, if you've read any of the books by people like Girl Hess or uh, Patty Griffith uh, you're into this too and, and you'll you'll enjoy that conversation I know well today we're talking about uh, Civil War tactics in one particular moment one uh, concentrated uh, uh, event is, is what we're going to get to by the end of our hour here on July 1st at Gettysburg when Iverson's brigade uh, uh, engaged uh, just north of the town but uh, there's a lot of background to that story, and that's what we're going to learn about uh, from our guest, uh, Robert J. Winstra. Mr. Winstra, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. You have uh, written about uh, General Iverson. The, the book uh, I'm looking at here is called The Rashness of That Hour, and the subtitle spells it out, Politics, Gettysburg, and the Downfall of Confederate Brigadier General Alfred Iverson. Uh, but l let me start with your own background before we get into Iverson's background and, and ask, uh, uh, is, is writing about the Civil War what do you do most of the time? Well, I recently retired as a, uh, from the News and Public Affairs Office at the University of Illinois. I uh, got a master's degree in history and a part of a Ph.D., I worked for a while, and then I went back to school and got a master's in journalism and started working in the news and public affairs office. Oh, very good. And Illinois, Illinois, home of the largest library in the Big Ten, if I recall correctly. Yes, it's, I think it's the either the first or second largest uh, public university library in the country. It's, uh, very impressive. I I've did a little bit of work there when I was writing all for the regiment, and a uh, very, very impressive facility. The... Uh, on the other hand, I was reading something uh, about college rivalries that was classifying different kinds, and it said one is the uh, uh, the rivalry where one party does not even acknowledge it, and, and my alma mater, Michigan, oh. <laughs> uh, you know, which plays Illinois of uh, course yep. every year, does not regard the Illinois game as a rivalry game. Uh, the, Ohio the, State the, would be the rivalry game for Michigan. Yes, for Michigan, it's Ohio State. And, and then there's Michigan State and Notre Dame, but it's Ohio State is what it's all about. And it just drives the Michigan State people nuts that we don't take their game as the number one game. Uh, but Illinois is just down there with, with the other the rest of the Big Ten. And, Except and, uh, this year. Uh, but we're, but now it's going to be different. We're 6-0, and we're doing quite well this year. That it, it's, it could be a Rose Bowl season for, for the Illini. So Hopefully. Good, good luck to them. Um, except when they play Michigan, of course. Uh, uh, but uh, so you you retired, and now you have the opportunity to write about the Civil War. Is this is this a long time interest of yours? Oh, even from when I was a kid, uh, around the uh, Civil War centennial is what what sparked my interest uh, greatly. I was quite young, but uh, it had a big impact on me. And I visited Gettysburg at that time, and from then on, I had a kind of a consuming interest in the Civil War. You know, that, that's a common story a lot of people I talk to on the show have. I got interested just a few years after the centennial, but not much long after. And uh, a lot of the, the artifacts, the, uh, the, the the Bruce Catton book and the uh, 
uh, toys and games and other things from the centennial were still around and, and caught my interest. Do you suppose that we'll see something like this you know, 20 years down the road, all the people who got hooked by, by uh, Ken Burns in the late 80s? Well, Ken oh. Burns, yes, but the uh, bicentennial doesn't seem to be sparking quite as much interest as the uh, centennial did. Or, or you mean the sesquicentennial right now, yeah. you mean? Yes, the sesquicentennial. Yeah, yeah true, it doesn't. Why do you suppose that is? I think that we're farther in distance from the Civil War. I think that uh, uh, society has changed a lot in its attitudes about things, and there's this a movement toward uh, taking a little bit different look at it and, and bringing in broader aspects rather than the military history. And it was the military history that caught my interest at the time. That, that is true. There really has been a, a realignment of, of interpretation, certainly at the battlefields themselves and other places. And for some people, you know, it, I, I find it ironic that the argument for doing that often is that this will broaden the public's interest if it's not just this technical which brigade went where stuff. Yes. But a lot of people, myself included, were, were really drawn in by that kind of stuff initially, uh, even if, if we found that there was more to the war than, than a big... Yes, that's uh, what sparked my interest. And, of course, as you dig deeper, you become interested in some of the more broader issues. But I think it's that, that kind of like the, the looking at the battle that, that initially sparked my interest anyway, and I think for others... That's maybe the most accessible way to start, but as you read, you you go deeper and deeper into a lot of the issues surrounding the surrounding the battle itself. Yeah, I think it, it, the ripple effect takes place. You start wondering why why are they here at Gettysburg? How did they get here? And, and and you ask bigger and bigger questions. And now there are some people who are resistant to that, of course, who who, who don't want to take on the big questions, but. Uh, that's not always the case, certainly. Well, so you wrote this book. Did you start this book with your retirement? Is this something you've been working on for a oh, while? I've been working on it for about 10 years. Uh, I started I started before I retired, but I really wasn't able to devote the time to finish it up till I finally retired. How how did you go about doing this writing, or, how, or doing the research, I should say? How, how did you collect... Uh, your sources. Well, one of the key places, of course, was uh, the the tremendous uh, repositories in North Carolina, particularly Chapel Hill, Duke, East Carolina University. I found a few important uh, pieces there. Um, the internet has been actually extremely helpful. A lot of searching will uncover items that are in small historical societies. Um, a lot of people post family letters that wouldn't otherwise be accessible. So the Internet was just a huge boon to uh, carrying out the research. It really has changed the way historians do things. Did, did you find people would post things and you would able, be able to just use them as they were posted, or would you learn about something and actually travel and go look at it? Well, I traveled some, but I found the most cost-efficient way, and particularly when I had a lot of things to get from a particular repository, was to hire a professional researcher. Ah. It saves a lot of money in, in the end because instead of paying for all the travel, uh, hotels, and not being familiar with the repository, if you can direct the researcher to the items you're looking for, it proved to be quite efficient. And I had to stumble onto an excellent, really excellent researcher that was very helpful.
when when you work with a researcher like that, do you, do they normally send you copies of things, or do they make their own extracts of items? What how what was your technique for that? Well, they would send me copies, but occasionally there'd be things that couldn't be photocopied, and they'd actually have to handwrite them out, which was a real pain. But it was very helpful to get the material. Uh-huh. Um, and sometimes when they were digging through, they would come across things that I wouldn't be aware of that was in a file that would lead me in other directions, which was just extremely helpful. Mm. That is the wonder of, of of research. One of the things we were talking about libraries a moment ago, you and I, and, and one of the issues on campus these days here at East Carolina is the the uh, the campus library, which a part of it was taken over for a tutoring center and another part for a remedial education center, and now they want to take another part for a mathematics lab. And the, uh, the 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 dean of the library, if he had his way, would just move all the books off campus to a storage facility, and you could request them, and they would show up. Uh, but you wouldn't be able to go into the stacks and look at things. And just as you're saying, your researcher would find things that you didn't know were there. Uh, the idea that we could do research by requesting things implies we already know what's there, and that the whole point of research is finding out what's there. So. It's important, very important to be hands-on. Yeah, absolutely, and, and we're we're frustrated by our, our library dean's resistance to that, but uh, we'll we'll win in the end. I'm confident. I'm sure so, you will. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead, please. Well, I was just gonna say, I'm sure I'm sure you'll you'll come out ahead on that issue because it'll become very frustrating for people who are trying to, particularly people who are trying to do from the outside, if. If it becomes just a, uh, a a place where there's no one there to really help you with with the uh, with the kind of depth of research that you need to do. Well, that, I think that's absolutely right. Well, there's a lot of depth of research here in your in, in what you've written, and it differs from some way. There, there are micro histories one can read already about the first day at Gettysburg. Harry Fonz is, is one. I'm sure listeners are familiar with the huge orange volumes that look at Gettysburg uh, through through a microscope. But your book starts uh, before the Mexican War. Uh, tell us a little bit about the background of or the the family life of, of this General Alfred Iverson. Who who was he? Where did he come from? Well, he was born in Georgia in 1829. Uh, he came from a prominent family, and it often gets overlooked at just how prominent his family was. His father was a lawyer, a judge, a U.S. congressman, and later a senator. Uh, He was one of the leading voices for secession in the United States Senate right before the Civil War. Um, Most important of all was that uh, his father, Iverson's mother died when he was about one year old. A couple of years later, his father married into the family of John Forsyth. Uh, his wife was the eldest daughter of John Forsyth. John Forsyth is even today considered probably the greatest politician ever to come out of the state of Georgia. He was a senator, a governor, a congressman, uh, U.S. counsel in Spain, and was secretary of state under... Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren, and back then, Secretary of State was virtually uh, second to being the president. So, 
he came from an incredibly prominent family um, in Georgia politics. Hmm. So, so uh, Alfred Iverson starts life uh, with some advantages. Did did his father help his his career early on? He helped him in every way he could. He um, at age seventeen, his father helped raise a. Uh, a battalion for volunteers for service in the Mexican War, and his father got young Alfred. His father's name was also Alfred Iverson. Mm-hmm. He helped young Alfred get a uh, commission as a lieutenant uh, in the Mexican War at the age of 17. Um, in 1855, he used his influence to help him get an appointment as a lieutenant in the U.S. 1st Cavalry, which was a... Uh, newly created uh, regiment, and he used his influence with uh, Jefferson Davis, who was his friend and political ally, and it was Davis who, who helped uh, with Secretary of War, who helped put together uh, the officers for this new regiment. So, and at the beginning of the war, he used his influence to help uh, young Alfred get his appointment in the uh, Confederate Provisional Army. So the Confederate Provisional Army, so he wasn't in the, the Georgia state troops when he joined the Army. He, he, no, he went into what, what in essence was the Confederate Regular Army, and he was sent to North Carolina on recruiting duty, which is how he became involved with these North Carolina regiments. So one of the themes we'll see is, is that uh, Iverson the Georgian is commanding North Carolina troops, and, and that may not go over so well. Uh, we'll follow up on that theme after we take a short break. Talking today with Robert Winstra, author of The Rashness of That Hour. It's a look at Iverson's General Iverson and his brigade at Gettysburg. We'll talk more about it in a few minutes. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. You don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If only I'd known, I would have done things differently. Caring for an elderly loved one is not an easy responsibility. It can be compared to raising children, except children continue to learn new skills and develop as they get older. To help you find the answers that you need, tune into Your Elder Care Coach with host Mike Gamble. If you are currently caring for an elderly loved one or you see the warning signs ahead, we'll help you provide the best care and still maintain your life. Listen every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio Variety. In the hustle and bustle world we live in, we need to be reminded that in all failures and successes, we are the common denominators. The change needs to come from within. Each week, let Daniel Gutierrez and Osmara Vindel help bring you the tools you need to manage your success. We'll talk with the movers and shakers of business and personal development and see what makes them tick. The only bilingual radio show, right here, right now. Aki Ora airs live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Robert Winstra, author of The Rashness of That Hour, Politics, Gettysburg, and the Downfall of Confederate Brigadier General Alfred Iverson. Iverson, as we discussed in the first segment, was from Georgia, the son of a powerful politician, senator, and congressman, uh, served in the Mexican War, and got an appointment to the Confederate Provisional Army, the, the essentially the regular army at the beginning of the Civil War in 1861, from which he's detailed to North Carolina to help raise troops. So, uh, Robert, we've got uh, Iverson in North Carolina raising troops at the beginning of the war. Uh, what, was he successful? Was he a good recruiter? Well, he seemed to be, and he, and he was particularly... Uh because he was a professional soldier from the regular army, he was particularly adept at uh, at uh, drilling the troops. Early in the war, there were weren't that many professional soldiers, and so uh, he became uh, more or less a drill instructor and 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 uh, commanded the uh, recruiting camp there on the on the lower Cape Fear River. So it's near Wilmington where they're putting a brigade uh, together. Right. Uh, at, at what point does he go from being drill instructor to uh, to, to getting uh, an officer's role in a regiment? Well, during that time, I mean, contrary to what most of us are used to today, back in those days, uh, the uh, the soldiers elected their officers, and because he was one of the few professional soldiers there, uh, he be, he was elected as colonel of the 20th North Carolina, or what became the 20th North Carolina. So the uh, they were originally the 10th North Carolina Volunteers, and they became right. the 20th North Carolina State Regiment. It's uh, confusing, but they end up as the 20th North Carolina. Um, and so how did how did he do as as a, a regimental colonel then? Well, he did okay. I mean, he had some run-ins with some of the men in his uh, his regiment, but they were on garrison duty for until June of 1862. Kind of a quiet assignment. He rubbed a few of them the wrong way, but he managed to be reelected as colonel uh, when the reorganization happened in May of 1862. So he did he did he did okay at that point in the war. And so they were serving garrison duty. They're still in North Carolina at this point, right? Uh, then at Fort uh, Johnston, near near Southport. So presumably the, the the young bucks are all aching to to get involved in the war. How how do they finally get to the front? Well, eventually uh, the the demand for troops in Richmond, and so they were transferred uh, near the beginning of the Seven Days Campaign. Uh, they transferred uh, along with uh, three other brigades to the area around Richmond, where they put in a brigade commanded by. By General Samuel Garland. Now, was this so? They come in as a replacement regiment. Do they fit into a brigade Garland's already commanding, or how did how did they get? There was a lot of reorganization the... going on around that time, and they they pulled in uh, several North Carolina brigades together, and then they added the 20th North Carolina those troops to form a brigade under under Garland in preparation for the beginning of the seven days campaign outside Richmond. Now these troops were all then, so Garland's Brigade are all North Carolina regiments, is that right? That's correct. 
But Garland himself is not a North Carolinian. He's a Virginian. And that, uh, to this day, there's a a rivalry between the states. Oh, absolutely. Uh, There's no question about that. But uh, I I guess they don't have any choice. That's the brigade they're in. Uh, They were attempting to to bring uh, regiments from the same uh, state together under generals from that state, but it was just beginning to happen around that time uh, as the, as they were getting ready to move forward under General Lee in the seven days. So it was just beginning, and Garland was a good a good general, so um, they left things alone, at least for the short haul. So how did the, how did the regiment fare? Was the seven days uh, battles its first action? In that action, uh, their first action was at, at uh, Gaines Mill, and uh, the regiment actually, Iverson's regiment actually got slaughtered at, at Gaines Mill, and Iverson himself was at the front of the attack and got wounded when they seized the battery. It was a Confederate victory, but their regiment got really decimated in that battle, and Iverson got wounded. So he steps out of the war momentarily. How long How long was he out? He was out until about the beginning of September, just as Lee's army moved into Maryland. And did he then just resume command of the regiment? He, he resumed command of the regiment and uh, commanded it at the, at the Battle of South Mountain and the Battle of Sharpsburg or Antietam. In both of those battles, the brigade broke and ran from the field. Um, Garland got killed at South Mountain, and the brigade was kind of dispirited. And the, the brigade, including Riverson's regiment, at both battles ran from the field. Um, it was a kind of a disgrace for the for that whole brigade during that during that those two battles. Hmm. So that. And would you say it was the loss of Garland that contributed to that? Most people point to that as being a major issue. Um, a, another colonel from the 5th North Carolina named Duncan K. McRae uh, took temporary command, and he had a, he had a lot of problems uh, managing the brigade in those two battles. So McRae and not Iverson becomes the commander of the brigade then? He was the senior colonel, so he became the... Uh, the temporary commander of the brigade after Garland was mortally wounded at South Mountain. And he was, there was some interesting maneuvering at this point, it seems to me, in the the command. Uh, McCray doesn't stay in command for that long, does he? He really only stays in from uh, the Battle of South Mountain, which is September 14th, 1862, until early in November, when Iverson is appointed over him as the the permanent brigadier general and commander of the brigade. So you would think this would be an advantage to the brigade since, since McCray has proved less than competent at South Mountain and again at Antietam. Uh, but you write that Iverson was not well received. One of the big issues then was is that McCray, of course, was a North Carolinian. He was uh, kind of a... Uh, a populist politician in North Carolina, and uh, the men had been willing to serve under Garland because he was such a good general, 
<laughs> even though he's from Virginia. But um, they were very unhappy when a North Carolinian was passed over and a a colonel who originally came from Georgia was made the permanent commander, and this that caused a lot of issues. Iverson also kept nearly all of the Virginia staff officers from from Garland's brigade on as on the, in his own brigade staff, and that caused a lot of problems too. Then this also sets up a, a sort of chain uh, effect. After McRae leaves to take temporary command, someone else has to command his regiment. And then when Iverson gets command of the brigade, someone else has to take command of his regiment. Uh, each time somebody moves up, it creates a vacancy below. And uh, as I'm reading here, it looks like every single one uh, of, of these, in, every time they had to replace a colonel within the, the brigade that is now Iverson's brigade, formerly Garland's brigade, uh, there's trouble. There, there's there's a uh, a war. Were they still electing these officers? Is, is that why there was such difficulty picking a new colonel? That the, they were not the, electing them at that point. Uh, they were they were appointed by, basically by in in the case of of the Army of Northern Virginia by by General Lee through recommendations. Um, but they there had to be. Well, there was some dispute over that with at least one of the regiments where, where the governor of North Carolina was claiming he could appoint the officers. McRae's, McRae's regiment was a unique regiment. Um, as you mentioned before, Iverson's regiment was originally the 10th North Carolina Volunteers and became the 20th North Carolina State Troops. The 5th North Carolina was always State Troops, and by some early legislation, they did not have to go through the reorganization and the elections and the things that went on before. So based on that, Zeb Vance, who came in in the fall of 1862 as the new governor of North Carolina, claimed that he had the power to make the appointments instead of the uh, Army commanders in the Army of Northern Virginia, and that caused a huge ruckus. So you've got the governor of North Carolina claiming appointing rights, the structure of the Army of Northern Virginia leading up to General Lee trying to appoint other officers. Uh, now, Iverson's appointment as a brigade commander has to be confirmed by the Confederate Congress, does it not? That's correct. So you've got another effort there to try to block Iverson by North Carolina politicians. They went behind the scenes and tried to get some of the officers in the brigade to uh, make public complaints against Iverson so that they could block his appointment in the Confederate Senate. No one would go public. But behind the scenes, they were all uh, raising uh, numerous complaints about Iverson and uh, stirring up all kinds of trouble and um, working closely with uh, both Governor Zeb Vance and the two Confederate senators from North Carolina to uh, to try and uh, keep Iverson from getting uh, permanently confirmed as the Brigadier General. I'm just picturing from the lowly spot of, of a department administrator here in an academic setting. Yes. If somebody were trying to block my appointment and going to everyone else in the department and asking for bad things about me they could use, 
on the one hand, I guess I'm touched by the loyalty that Iverson's officers would not go public, but uh, that that was a violation of, of, of the chain of command to make complaints. But privately, they told these these politicians all these bad things. I mean, there was clearly a lot of disaffection. It, it's hard to imagine this is a, a smoothly functioning brigade at this point. Yeah, it was far from smoothly soothing, smoothly functioning. And also, Iverson consistently, whenever he had a chance, tried to promote outsiders to, in his own regiment, he tried to, to get an outsider in as a, as a replacement as colonel. And um, in another case, he tried to get a Virginia officer who had been who had lost in the elections for reorganization in as lieutenant or as the colonel of another regiment. The guy was a Virginian on top of uh, being an outsider. So there was just nearly open warfare uh, throughout the brigade during the during the period from say November 1862 into early 1863. So, not surprisingly, the, the say the brigade is not functioning well. Um, they participate at Chancellorsville uh, in, in May 1863. Uh, there's there's a we'll, we'll sort of jump forward through the story so we can talk about Gettysburg uh, before we go here, which is, is the, the key. Uh, but there are some interesting things you describe about the the life in the Army of Northern Virginia, the religious revivals of that winter, the the snowball fights of that winter, the, the various activities. Um, but as they get set to go uh, uh, north in at the end of May, beginning of June, 1863, and what what will become the, the Gettysburg campaign. Uh, you've got the structure now where, where Iverson commands the brigade. He's got some unhappy colonels commanding his regiments. He himself reports to Robert Rhodes as a division commander. That's correct. And Rhodes, in turn, reports to General Ewell, uh, who's re- replacing half of Stonewall Jackson, uh, who was killed after, dies after Chancellorsville. That's a so, good summary. <laughs> So that we've got our, our, our lineup set here. Um, one other thing about the preparation for this campaign you mentioned that I, I was less familiar with. Uh, within the brigade, there are detachments of skirmishers organized. Uh, describe how that worked. Rhodes was a, was a real innovator in this area. Before, um, before Rhodes came along, uh, skirmishers had been kind of an ad hoc uh, organization. He organized skirmishers based based on uh, skilled men trained for that duty that and formed actual units. The men stayed with their regiment except in the face of battle. When it came to battle, they formed up into these uh, skirmisher or sharpshooter units and. Uh, this is this is something new that's been coming out. Fred Ray, who's from Asheville, uh, North Carolina, has written a really good book on on uh, roads innovations in this area. So, um, this is something that that is one of Rhodes' greatest accomplishments. So, so now when a brigade, when, when his division goes into battle, if if they want to send out a line of skirmishers, a line of troops to scout ahead, uh, instead of just just picking every fourth man or, or picking half of Company B or something like that. You've got a, a group already designated, already trained. 
those are the skirmishers every time. That's correct. That And that's different from Civil War practice and most other units. So at one level, it looks like Rhodes Division is, is well prepared. They've got a, a talented commander. They've got some innovative tactical uh, organization. And the five brigades of Rhodes Division, uh, you know, seem like they're ready to go. But one of them is Hiverson's and his men. Uh, we know are not happy. And uh, Colonel Colonel O'Neill, uh, Edward O'Neill, who is also a less than a less than a great commander, was was another problem in in uh, Rhodes Division. So we've got two two brigades that are, are going to be problematic. Well, we'll take another short break here. We'll come back and join Iverson and O'Neill's brigades as they. Uh, fight at Gettysburg. Talking with Robert J. Winstra, I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Tune in to Green with Envy every week for the most up-to-date information about living a green, fulfilling life. With a mix of serious inquiry and engaging humor, host Peter Terween and his guest experts uncover topical issues and refreshing stories that'll keep you informed and inspired. We'll want to hear from you during the live program as well. Green with Envy is broadcast live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on World Talk Radio Variety. Hey, did you know Voice America has partnered with the Kidstar Network to expand their reach through Voice America Kids? Voice America Kids will feature talk radio for kids, by kids, along with special event programming and live broadcasts. Each program is conveniently archived for on-demand listening at any time. Please check our archives for the latest events and happenings on voiceamericakids.com. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Robert Winstra, author of The Rashness of That Hour, Politics, Gettysburg, and the Downfall of Confederate Brigadier General Alfred Iverson. Iverson, as we learned, commanded a brigade in the division of Robert Rhodes, part of Early's uh, Second Corps approaching, not Earl's, Ewell's Second Corps, early was a division commander, uh, Ewell's Second Corps approaching Gettysburg from the north on July 1st, 1863. Uh, many listeners have, have been to Gettysburg. Everyone surely has read enough about the battle to recall that on the first day, uh, General Heath's division came down the Chambersburg Pike toward the town, engaged with Confederate cavalry under John Buford occupying good ground, as uh, the movie would have it. And there, uh, uh, not long after Rhodes Division approaches from pretty much from due north uh, and sees the fighting going on and prepares to to pitch in, uh, Iverson's and O'Neill's brigades are, are more or less side by side. And uh, it really looks like all Rhodes has to do is send them forward, and they'll take uh, the first corps in the flank and, and sweep to a great victory. Uh, how does it look on, on the field at that moment from, from the ground, uh, from Iverson's viewpoint? Well, they were, um, 
they were on the uh, station on Oak Hill, which was a prominent area looking over the field, and uh, their assignment was to move forward across the field in the front against what Rhodes perceived as a line of skirmishers in the field. Uh, all he could see in the field was a thin line of troops. So uh, while O'Neill's brigade attacked across Mummersburg Road uh, just to the east of them, um, Iverson's troops were going to sweep across the, the field in conjunction with O'Neill's brigade. But... Uh, Things began to fall apart pretty quickly, and, uh, and O'Neill's brigade ran into problems, was pushed back in about 15 minutes, and then Iverson's brigade pushed across the field. So they didn't go across simultaneously. O'Neill's brigade goes in first, that's driven correct. back before Iverson even starts moving forward. That's correct. I was I was at the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg this past June, and um, Gettysburg College is is on the low ground behind Oak Ridge, uh, from the Union viewpoint behind it, uh, and and I I went up on on the ridge and I don't know if I had I had not read your book I think I had may have received a copy but I thought I'll go look at that ground, and uh, there's a, a small observation tower there, That's right. uh, so you can actually climb up and really see the terrain. Uh, this this field across which Iverson's men are marching is not very big. It, right, it's, it's just a uh, like a 150 acre farm field. Uh, they had some a uh, small forage grass called Timothy growing in the field, um, and they marched straight across the open field. Now they do this because, as you said, they they imagine there are some federal skirmishers nearby. But in fact, there's a, a, a stone wall at the other end of the field, and some woods. And behind that, what, what's behind the stone wall? Well, the six regiments from uh, Brigadier General Henry Baxter's Federal Brigade were hidden behind the wall. After after they repulsed O'Neill, he shifted his entire force behind that stone wall, and they stayed hidden while Iverson's troops marched across the the John Forney farm field and along the front. Now this seems like where those those skirmishers that, that we were talking about last segment, uh, that Robert, Robert Dole's Robert Rhodes' division has its own skirmisher battalion. They should be out front. They should get to that wall and, and discover that it's full of Yankees. But they and, weren't and there. <laughs> they're not there. Where are they? <laughs> what happened is when they when they first approached the town, Rhodes threw out his skirmishers to uh, to push back some uh, vedettes from. Uh, um, Buford's Cavalry, which were in that area. And uh, when that was over with, they kept the skirmishers apart from the rest of Iverson's brigade kind of guarding the flank because there was only a line of small line of federal troops in the field. Uh, they didn't think they needed them. They didn't have time to move them, so they just went ahead without any skirmishers in their front. So they're just marching like like it's on a parade. There's nobody in front of them to scout. They're just going forward five regiments abreast. That's correct. And and what happens then? They get within about 80 yards of the uh, wall, and the entire Federal Brigade rises up and just absolutely slaughters Iverson's troops. Um, more than 100 men are killed outright. Um they pour volley after volley into the troops. 
the only place that they can take any cover is a, a small gully that runs across the middle of the field. Hardly any protection there. They're getting uh, uh, crossfire from the from the woods on their right and from part of uh, Baxter's brigade that moved up on their right, so they're getting it from three sides. They're absolutely annihilated. Do they fight back at all? They fight back desperately, but they're in no position to really get anywhere. Uh, uh, Daniel Harvey Christie, who's the colonel at 23rd North Carolina, tries to make a charge out of the out of the gully. He gets shot in both lungs. He's mortally wounded. Uh, men are falling everywhere. Eventually, the federal troops come out with bayonets and prod hundreds of uh, of Iverson's men out of the hollow and take them as prisoners. And where is Iverson while all this is going on? Well, he's in the rear. He uh, stays in the rear, and it's hard to know exactly where he is, but he's clearly in the rear. And if you believe some of the stories, he's cowering behind a log. He's hiding behind a tree. I think those are probably exaggerations, but he clearly was nowhere near the front. He stayed in the rear the entire time. Now, he he was a brave man, at least at, at Gaines Mill, where he was wounded uh, at the front of his troops. Do you, do you think being wounded caused him psychologically to to act as he did here at uh, at this battle and as he would at, at other battles? Well, I can speculate, and I didn't put it in the book, but I think that he had when his wife his die his wife died during the first year of the war, and he had two small children, aged basically at that point one and three. And uh, my opinion, I really didn't put it in the book because it's pure speculation, but I think that he stared death in the face at Gaines Mill and realized that uh, he had he had this young family to take care of and he was not going to put himself in a huge amount of danger after that. Um, he showed clear signs that he liked to stay in the rear at, during Chancellorsville and there were some widespread complaints even at Chancellorsville, that that was what was going on. Hmm. Now, the other rumor that that you you account you report in the book is that he had been drinking as well. Is, is there any is that anything more than a rumor? Yeah, yeah. I I even when I went to Gettysburg one time, I took a tour with a friend of mine who hadn't never been to Gettysburg before, and we had a guide. And you have to do a you have to do a kind of a brief overview, and he 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 basically said. And even in that tour that Iverson was drinking, I don't think there's any evidence to support that at all. The only evidence is one little short item that appeared like 40 years after the war from somebody who wasn't even in Iverson's brigade. Um, as bad as Iverson might have been, as much as he caused the problems there, I don't think he was drunk. So people, his own men were, were not happy with his performance, that he was behind the lines, uh, but but not necessarily drunk at the time. He did uh, initially tell his division commander that his own men were, were surrendering, that he said a whole regiment went over to the enemy. Um, how did, what, caught, what made him say that? Well, when the uh, when the Union, when Baxter's Union troops rushed out on the field to take prisoners, a lot of the men in the in the hollow uh, raised raised their handkerchiefs and white flags uh, to keep from being killed, and he took that as a sign that his men had surrendered. And uh, in a panic, 
really in a panic, he went to Rhodes and said his whole brigade was uh, surrendering. And uh, even 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 you and Rhodes, they don't say too much in their official report about Iverson's conduct because a lot of it, a lot of this stuff gets talked about and done behind the scenes. But he, they mentioned that incident in there in the official report. So, so he did not cover himself with glory here. Uh, hardly. Um, in the aftermath of the battle, uh, did this end his career? Uh, this, this, this fiasco where his, his troops march up to the stone wall and are slaughtered, and he's behind the lines during the retreat from Gettysburg, uh, right before they cross over into uh, uh, Virginia. Uh, Lee removes him from command of the brigade, and. Uh, Temporarily places in command of a uh, Louisiana brigade in a, in another division, and then in the fall of 1863, uh, he, he transfers to Georgia, where he where he uh, uh, takes up a command under Howell Cobb in Georgia, and uh, is involved with in a major a major fighting in front of Atlanta. So he ends up. Uh, so he spends the rest of the war in the Western Theater. He spends the rest of the war in Georgia and South Carolina, in front of uh, in front of Sherman's army as it pushed through Georgia and, uh, and South Carolina. Yeah. So, one of the things that that really comes through in this book is is Iverson's personality. Uh, it sounds like there never was a subordinate he couldn't pick a fight with. Uh, that he doesn't seem to get along with anyone. Is, is, is that how you read this man? He's incredibly stubborn. Uh, he's a, a stickler for uh, professional Army discipline. Uh, he had no sensitivity to the, uh, the idea of uh, recognizing uh, North Carolina officers for their role and appointing them to positions in in uh, North Carolina Brigade, he's just incredibly tone deaf to the men under his command and incredibly stubborn. Uh, he, he sort of combines maybe two of the worst prejudices than the uh, uh, state against state and regular army against volunteers, uh, which, which were not unique to him, certainly, but um, his... Uh, 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 oh, th- there was a line where he talks about how the the, the privates are uh, inferior to the officers, and and that the the officers must must behave accordingly. That they they can't be familiar and friendly with these men, even though they've known them all their lives. They're all volunteer soldiers together, uh, but he wants his officers to uh, to to get rid of any familiarity and companionship. And uh, here's yeah, that was a real gem that I found in the National Archives where. He actually had a set of his orders, uh, of the orders that he issued, and that one was one of the gems of the whole thing and kind of sums up uh, his attitude, uh, which really is at the center of uh, a lot of the problems that he had. I'm looking at the quote here. You, you, you quote him as saying, from a military point of view, the private is certainly the inferior and must so be regarded. Uh, when, when you're dealing with proud southern uh, boys, uh, enlisting to to fight for their states and their their society, uh, and treating them in, in that way is, is is not likely to get you uh, uh, not likely to lead to successful leadership. 
And the other thing, as you mentioned, is that the the, the officers were the neighbors and uh, uh, elites of the of the towns that these people came from, and were their friends and uh, acquaintances and business uh, prominent people from the towns they came from. It 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 really he was just tone deaf to that whole uh, uh, part of it that comes in when you're a volunteer soldier rather than a professional soldier. So, what happened to Iverson after the war? Well, he supposedly was redeemed by uh, carrying out a major victory at uh, at the Battle of Sunshine Church outside Atlanta. But, but actually, if you look into it, a lot of his men say that he stayed behind the, the lines there. After the war, he ended up buying a uh, orange grove in the area uh, near Kissimmee or Maitland, Florida, and. Uh, his orange groves were wiped out by a freeze, and he was reduced to living on a Mexican war pension of eight dollars a month. Hmm. So, not not a happy end uh, to the the Iverson story. He kind of squandered his uh, inheritance and uh, um, really was in poverty until he died in uh, 1911. Well, that uh, brings us to the end both of his story and of our time uh, this afternoon to talk about it. But, uh, Rob, I really want to thank you for being on the show and uh, sharing your knowledge of this uh, very interesting Confederate general with us. Thank you, Jerry. I'm sorry my voice is giving out a little bit, but other than that, I really enjoyed enjoyed being on. A brave effort on your part. Much appreciated. Yep. Listeners, to learn more about this, you'll want to get a copy of The Rashness of That Hour, Politics, Gettysburg, and the Downfall of Confederate Brigadier General Alfred Iverson, Robert J. Winstra. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network.